Welcome back to the Form IPLJ Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Ho. Today's show brings you part three of our 26th annual IPLJ Symposium. The Transparency of Notice and Choice Panel will evaluate the efficacy of this mechanism to protect information privacy. Panelists will focus on the role that both content and design play in notifying users of their privacy rights. Panelists will also discuss what it means to provide users with proper notice and choice in an age when digital media and technology are constantly evolving. Our moderator will be Ron Lezemnik, Clinical Associate Professor of Law at Fordham Law School, Wendy Seltzer, Strategy Lead and Counsel at the World Wide Web Consortium, Liz Willery, Senior Policy Analyst for Sanford Democracy and Technology, Maya Apaluru, Associate for Crowell and Moore, and Paula Bruning, Counsel for the Sequel of Technology and IP Law. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. First, I just want to remind you all that there's a reception after the panel. If you're able to stay, please do. And now I'm very excited to introduce our last panel, the Transparency of Notice and Choice panel, moderated by Professor Lezebnik, a professor here at Fordham Law School. Thank you. Thank you, and well done on pronouncing my name. That's a, that's a rare event. So good morning. Somebody's paying attention. Good afternoon. I still haven't heard you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. See, I, t- I promised the panel that I would get each of you to speak just a little bit, so I've already accomplished my goal for the panel. But the truth is, uh, you know, this is the last panel of the day. Uh, we all know each other fairly well by now. Uh, so please feel free to, to ask this panel questions. Uh, we, I do recognize that most of the people in the room are students, uh, and so we're going to take as much of an educational approach uh, to our answers as we can. If we say something uh, that I don't catch, uh, in, in my knowledge of it, as something that uh, you know is inside, clear to insiders, but not necessarily uh, clear to people who are not familiar with uh, you know these issues, please raise your hand and ask us to elaborate on what we meant by that. But I think overall, this panel. Um, uh, who is filled with very wonderful people uh, who I really enjoyed getting to meet uh, for the most part yesterday, but we did chat a little bit via email, uh, are, are going to uh, be very illuminating. So just to start us off, uh, you know, with regard to notice and choice, uh, you know, we've been talking about data, we've been talking about the concept of collect, collecting it and who should own it and one not. And this has been uh, an issue with regard to the internet from its inception, right? This idea that as soon as you go to a web page, uh, very early on in the internet's life, they wanted to know that you came to their web page. And as they became more sophisticated, they wanted uh, to know when you came back and perhaps even uh, eventually sell that data. I I was uh, speaking with somebody who had a very early internet company, said, yeah, back then we would just share the lists without even selling them because we didn't realize their value. So even they, at one point, didn't recognize the value of user data. Um, Eventually, though, there was this push to give notice, right? And privacy policies came about uh, to let people know that data was being collected. And theoretically, those privacy policies were supposed to say what that data was going to be used for, although many lawyers crafted them to say, we will use the data however we see fit, although they said it slightly more nicely than that. Uh, And therefore, you were given your first choice in notice and choice, right? You could A, continue viewing the website, or B, never visit it again. 
uh, but that's not the greatest of choice in the world. And eventually the FTC uh, did step in and uh, other places did step in to say, no, there should be a choice. There, there are certain things that when people visit a website, uh, you don't have to give them a choice about. It's inherent in visiting the website that people should know that this kind of information is being collected or used. But then there are other things that you're going to be exploiting the information about them that you should clue them into the fact that uh, this is happening. And to some extent, to the extent that you can, uh, give them an opportunity to select how much of their information is or is not being collected or is or is not being exploited. And websites these days, uh, some of them do in fact try to do that. While this was going on in websites, right, uh, technology just kept growing regardless. And we have uh, branches of things like uh, the Internet of Things, right? This idea that everything suddenly gets connected to the Internet, uh, the concept of using big data, the concept of uh, artificial intelligence. And all the while, we are still collecting data, and now we have more and more ways that we want to use that data uh, for a variety of purposes. And for the most part, uh, the public at large remained completely complacent about it, right? Uh, you were given notice and choice, but for the most part, it didn't seem to matter to most people, as many uh, as our keynote speaker said, as many of the previous panelists had indicated. Uh, and then something like Cambridge Analytica happens, and people are like, oh, I don't like this. Uh, and some of them actually do something about it and leave Facebook. But for the most part, we stay where we are. Uh, most people don't seem to change their habits. And yet, this is still uh, a fundamental issue that, from a legal perspective, we do want to think about and we do want to address. So to address it, we have a wonderful panel. And I've noticed that they sat us uh, in correlation with where we appear on uh, the promotional material. So I don't have to uh, say anything other than we start all the way uh, on the end with Paula, and then uh, Wendy, and then Maya, and then Liz, and then myself. And I'm going by first names because, again, this is a very casual panel. So uh, I'm going to give uh, each of the panelists an opportunity to introduce themselves by way of just asking a very simple question, uh, which is, how does this transparency issue, right, this idea of making it more clear related to the notice is affecting their particular branch of uh, what they do? And therefore, you can let us know a little bit about what your focus is and uh, what you're finding to be the most challenging uh, with uh, trying to improve notice and choice in uh, your market. So Paula, why don't we start with you? Thank, <clears throat> thank you. And uh, I'm going to apologize in advance for my voice. I'm at the very end of a cold and I sound a little froggy. Um, but thank you very much for the opportunity for us to be here. Um, and. Uh, Sort of where um, I'm hitting up against uh, the question of notice and notice and choice right now is in my work at SQL Technology Law, a small firm in Alexandria, Virginia, where a lot of the focus of our work is on counseling small and medium-sized companies uh, that want to come into compliance with data protection laws, and most particularly now with the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, which you obviously heard a lot about earlier today. And um, it's been an interesting exercise in that it really requires a lot of education for some of these companies who, to this point, um, have seen this as a sort of boilerplate exercise, and not really understanding the ramifications of notice and that this is supposed to be the outgrowth of some internal housekeeping that has to happen um, for you to write a notice that's meaningful. 
Um, but I would just add to that that I sort of bring to this conversation um, a lot of background from the work I did um, at the Center for Information Policy Leadership at Hunt and Williams, where we were looking at new governance uh, mechanisms for data um, in the context of accountability. And then at Intel Corporation, where I spent uh, five years uh, thinking about how do you reinterpret the fair information practice principles in the current environment? How do you make them workable um, in a data environment that is so changed from where, we, where it began? And I think Omer really highlighted that. And in that context, uh, looked closely at the question of transparency, uh, what its function is, uh, the role of notice, and how we might be able to open up that principle um, in uh, the 21st century to work better for regulators and for consumers. And with that, I'll turn this over. Uh, thank you, uh, Echo uh, Paula's thanks to uh, the, the Journal for inviting us here and to Ron for uh, bringing us together uh, to uh, talk about uh, what I see is a big challenge for the end user who uh, goes out on uh, the internet, the World Wide Web, and tries to uh, go about his or her business, tries to discover news, engage with a social <clears throat> network, learn something about his or her health, uh, and is confronted with a welter of privacy policies and inexplicable legalese, um, a bunch of cookie banners, telling you, you know, uh, click here to accept cookies. Um, and uh, for, for the end user trying to figure out uh, what's going on uh, is uh, a real challenge. Uh, Alicia McDonald and Lori Craner uh, back in 2008 uh, did a study uh, suggesting that the cost to the US economy of reading privacy policies, if every user uh, actually spent uh, just one visit trying to figure out the policy of each site uh, that they uh, interacted with uh, was $781 billion. Um, and uh, that, that's nearly a decade ago. Uh, or that it would take uh, users 40 minutes of every day uh, to, to keep up with understanding the, the policies uh, of the websites that they were visiting. Uh, so the, that's so, uh, among the, the challenges of, of notice, uh, that uh, even if users try diligently to understand what's being done with data that they supply, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, a barrier to uh, even reading through uh, the material. Uh, a second challenge uh, then is understanding what's uh, proposed there. So the, the transparency, um, first, uh, even if the, the sites are straightforward about what they plan to do with the data, even if they describe it, uh, there's very little feedback to the user uh, what it means that data is collected, what it means that data might be shared with our trusted business partners. Um, and until we see news stories like the target knows you're pregnant, uh, when uh, R uh, Charles Duhigg uh, went into Target's uh, algorithms and department and found that you know just by correlating the purchases that uh, hundreds of thousands of women made uh, as they went through the 
early stages of pregnancy uh, with your shopper ID or your credit card number uh, that they could figure out before uh, the woman's family uh, that uh, she was pregnant. Uh, so uh, her, a f father came into to one uh, Target store and confronted the manager. Why are you sending my daughter a catalog with uh, baby goods? Um, the manager you know, apologized, said, I'm sorry, something must have gone wrong. Uh, and then the man came back the next week saying, uh, I, actually, I have to apologize. Uh, my daughter hadn't told me yet. Um, that's, I mean, so algorithms... Uh, learning from information that we disclose merely in the course of uh, taking actions uh, can uh, ex expose much more sensitive information uh, than we realize. Uh, now, one of the earlier panelists mentioned machine learning, uh, where uh, the, the, the correlations built up from large data sets uh, may not even be explainable uh, beyond this is what we fed in, and uh, here are some correlations that came out. Trying to help a user understand the privacy implications of being one member uh, of that data set um, are uh, often unforeseeable. And it, so uh, that brings us uh, then to the, the question of choice, and do users uh, have real choices. In many cases, uh, they're given the, the binary choice of give us your data or go someplace else. Uh, as social networks, as job finding networks uh, become more and more critical to our day-to-day -day social and economic uh, existence, is it a valid choice to say you know, disclose information or go away? Uh, or is that telling some, the equivalent to telling someone uh, go live a hermit-like existence in a cave uh, or uh, disclose um, information to us. And, uh, and so sometimes, again, the, the choice isn't even yours. Uh, some, you can be exposed based on the linkage of so-called anonymous uh, information based on your participation in a large set. Uh, you can be exposed by information that others uh, give about you. Uh, so a few months ago, uh, detectives cracked the Golden State Killer uh, case out in uh, California by uh, mining uh, the uh, GED match uh, genomic information database. Uh, they thought uh, that this person might be uh, identifiable, created a fake profile based on some data that they uh, recovered at the uh, one of the crime scenes, uh, and found that uh, because various relatives uh, appeared in the database and were able to track that back to uh, an individual uh, whom they uh, then connected to the case. So uh, other uh, relatives of uh, the killer had uh, disclosed information that gave up uh, his identity. Uh, did he make a choice to participate in that? Um, not at all. And um, so finally, um, I just want to uh, talk briefly about of the role of technology um, in helping us to address this, these challenges. Uh, I work with the World Wide Web Consortium, which sets uh, standards for interoperability for uh, web technologies. And we've tried to 
look at uh, technological solutions to uh, these social problems or technological aids uh, to social problems. But frankly, they're much more social problems than they are uh, technology. So we developed the uh, P3P, the Platform for Privacy Preference uh, Interchange, where you could develop some standardized privacy policies um, as a website, uh, exchange those with a web browser where the user would have set some uh, standardized preferences about what to uh, accept or reject. It failed. Uh, the, 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 tech, the, the standard was relatively easy to write. Uh, you, you can abstract privacy uh, uh, policies to some, some key principles and uh, some key choices about what uh, or descriptions of what data is used for what. Uh, but you can't make uh, websites uh, adopt those except by regulation. Uh, and at the time, there was no regulation forcing uh, that kind of automated uh, disclosure. Um, and uh, you can't necessarily uh, get people to uh, understand and base their decision making uh, in on those uh, privacy disclosures in ways that uh, build a feedback loop between the uh, the end user or the customer and uh, the website. Uh, so after 10 years of, of that standard, we retired that standard because it wasn't doing what it needed to do. And we've tried other means to make the uh, exchange of information easier. Uh, do not track met a similar fate. It's easy to set a browser uh, setting to allow a user to indicate, I don't want to be tracked. Uh, it's very hard without regulatory pressure to make websites do anything usefully different when they receive that, I don't want to be tracked. Um, and so, so we, we continue to, to look at uh, how can we make interactions more understandable? How can we make uh, interactions give off less sort of data exhaust uh, by improving the security of web interactions so that you're giving data only to the site that you expect to be interacting with uh, and potentially work with cookies that help users to distinguish between uh, those uh, that are sent by the site they mean to be interacting with and tracking cookies that collect all sorts of uh, additional information for sharing among sites, uh, but there's uh, th there's still a lot more work, and ultimately, I think it's an interaction among law, technology, uh, social pressures, market norms, all have to, to come together to give users better privacy options. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, hard to follow that. <laughs> um, the, the best joke that I've heard about standards is that there are so many of them. Haha. Um, you don't know which one to follow because, and I, as a policymaker for years and years, um, we had the, a very similar problem as to what Wendy is describing, which is that you create a standard and uh, then you have to figure out what policy lever is right to actually get people to implement anything. Um, so right now I'm an attorney at Kroll and Mooring in Washington, D.C., and I focus on health technology. Before that, though, I worked in the government for six years um, at the White House for two years and at HHS for a little bit before that, the Federal Communications Commission. And um, one of the examples I was thinking of as I was listening to you speak is um, we had a, a model privacy notice project that we did at HHS. 
Um, I'm happy to like bring the healthcare perspective to this discussion. One of the things you, you've all heard of HIPAA, obviously, um, there's an increasing number of companies such as your Fitbit, um, many of the apps that you would have on your iPhone that have your health data, maybe even your sleep number bed, um, that are collecting a, a ton of sensitive data on Americans all the time, but are operating completely outside of the protections of HIPAA. Um, so at, at ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, which is where I worked, there was this idea that for these kind of personal applications, could there be some sort of transparency, um, like a, an FDA nutrition label, um, that you could compare apples to apples across different products and say, what is this product doing for security? What is this product doing for data uses? How could I get my data back if I terminate my relationship with this company? Um, we, we put a lot of work into it. I think at one point it was, um, it was a significant amount of money uh, into uh, consumer testing to make sure that the language was plain English and user-friendly and it was something that people were actually going to understand. And um, to this day, you know, I think only a handful of companies have voluntarily adopted it. And it's, it's to the point that Wendy so clearly articulated, which is that if there's no hammer, um, it's very difficult to get people to adopt this through carrots. And partially that's because of the FTC's jurisdiction. People don't want to hold themselves out to a higher standard. They kind of want to say as little as possible, right? So I think it becomes this question of um, when there is a best practice here, how do we get it implemented? I'm happy to talk more about that. I think we're going to do so later in the panel, but yeah, you go ahead. Hi. Uh, as the others before me have said, uh, thank you so much for, for having me here. It's, uh, it's been a great symposium. My name's Liz Woolery. I'm with the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C. We are a nonprofit civil society organization dedicated to uh, protecting and, and defending human rights and civil liberties online. Um, we do this uh, across a number of different arenas, working uh, in, on free expression issues, open internet, privacy and data, security and surveillance, uh, election security, especially now. Um, and so we're, we're kind of approaching those issues from a variety of perspectives. I will go ahead and out myself as uh, one of, if not the only non-lawyer or lawyer to be in the room. Um, and also, uh, I, I am on the free expression team um, rather than uh, the privacy team. Um, and from that perspective, uh, I have been able to do a lot of work, uh, often directly with the companies, about their um, corporate practices relating to privacy and security uh, and free expression, uh, focusing specifically on uh, the transparency of those practices, including public-facing transparency reports about uh, practices that, that impact user rights. Um, so I, I expect I will probably share more about that as we, uh, we get started. All right, well, thank you. So uh, I wanna first turn to Paula. Um, in, in reaction to uh, you know something that Wendy said and, and Maya uh, hinted at, which is you know the guidance that we have from a hammer perspective, uh, you know to to kind of get companies to let people know what's going on and give them a real choice and the difficulty in that. And obviously, as, as Maya said very directly, right, there's FTC guidance out there and people are willing to follow that and they leave it at that. Do you think the FTC guidance is enough? Do you, was there a push to make the FTC do more? Well, I think that's, you know, the question of uh, how much guidance is out there and how much guidance companies want is sort of a perennial question when it comes to privacy governance. You know, in the first instance, you'll hear, you know, we want more guidance, we want more clarity, we want more specificity, we need to know what the rules are, and yet, 
on the other side of that is this, is this sort of protest of don't make this too prescriptive because this is a dynamic industry, data practices change all the time, technology changes all the time, we don't want to get it locked into something that won't work. Um, and so I think that's one challenge when it comes to guidance. Another is that it takes a long time to create it. When the, I think after the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, there was um, a, a multi-year effort to create uh, language for financial services inst um, institutions to use in their privacy notices. It took a very long time, and in that time, the data practices changed, the technology changed, um, and by the time the guidance came out, there were a lot of protests that it really wasn't workable anymore, and we had moved so much of our financial practices online that um, those, that guidance didn't work. So I think there's a real tension there. At the same time, um, I think that the FTC has a lot to offer in this space. They're really wonderful at bringing together experts who can sort of talk about these more creative ways to uh, think about transparency, how you can do this effectively using technology, um, using privacy by design, which is um, you know building these building notice in as you go along, making sure notice is tracking what your developers are actually doing with a technology or a service that they're developing. So I, they, I think the FTC really has a role. The last thing I would just say um, is that when we're thinking about this, whether it's with the FTC or with you know industry guidance, um, we really have to think about you know, what is it that we're asking transparency to do now? I mean, we had a lot of conversation about um, this perception that consent and choice it really doesn't work terribly well anymore, given how critical data is to our everyday lives. And that's a separate conversation. But if we think about you know, what's the role of transparency, and I would throw out the idea that transparency serves several roles. There's an enforcement um, piece to it that you know, the FTC has to know what a company is doing to be able to compare what they say they're doing to what they're actually doing and enforce based on that. There's a role that it has in actually informing the interested consumer, and there are some that will go back and actually read those lengthy, mind-numbing legal documents that we call privacy notices. That, you know, we want to make sure that experts understand what's going on um, and advocates can understand what's going on so that they can participate in the public dialogue around this. And then there's also that sort of internal housekeeping aspect that I mentioned before. Notices, if you want to do them right, force a company to really look at what it is that they're doing. So I think if you think about transparency as serving several function, functions, it allows you to sort of unpack it a bit and say, you know, what role are we serving and how do we best do that? And it may be that transparency is going to be a multi-part exercise that we're going to have to experiment with to get it right. So um, Liz, building off of that transparency idea, uh, and, and this is, you know, something that you worked on. Uh, you know, Wendy pointed out, right, you can't really read all of this stuff. And the more transparency we push onto these, like, the, the bigger the document becomes potentially. How, how do we manage that? How do we, you know, balance this idea that we want people more informed, one, so that the government can uh, hold people to task for what they say they're doing, but from a consumer's cho uh, choice point of view, how do we uh, increase transparency in a way that actually informs choice? 
So uh, I have a, a number of, of answers <laughs> that, that come to mind. Um, the first, uh, referencing uh, some of the, the notes that I, I took down while, while Paula was speaking, is uh, increasing transparency can be done kind of both on the corporate side, um, kind of more, more generally in terms of um, how information is presented, but also how it's accessed. Um, so thinking in particular about user design choices that are made um, in, in kind of making particular information accessible and in highlighting it um, and in parsing the language or breaking it down so that it's not legalese, so that perhaps it's interesting. Um, you know, kind of one of the, the more interesting approaches that I have seen to this uh, was with respect to an updated privacy policy and a company sent out not only only, uh, you know, an email saying we've updated our privacy policy, but they also included a link to a, a site where they had redlined the policy, so you could see exactly what changed um, and, and understand what you were going from, you know, with the previous policy to, to the new policy. So I think that there are uh, a number of kind of interesting user design and, and UX design choices that can uh, really help with transparency. Yeah, I'd love to piggyback off of that a little bit. Um, I think we all know, as all of us interact with social media, that these companies definitely know how to make a user experience that is engaging and sticky. Um, how many times a day do we check our Twitter feeds, our Instagram, our Facebook, um, you know, for better or for worse? And I think that it's clear that they have invested a ton of money and a ton of time in thinking about user-centered design. They just haven't applied it to their privacy policies. Um, I think that kind of means we know they can do it. I'd love to see an industry-wide effort um, of people proactively coming forward and saying, how could we apply these same principles that we're, we're clearly expert at um, to making sure people can understand this important information? Can I jump in one more time? Uh, so I'll also say, like, a, you know, another kind of key piece of this is really incentivizing transparency, um, you know, explaining or uh, really selling companies in particular about why transparency might be important. Um, and one of the most powerful lever levers that we can use with respect to selling the importance of transparency is shareholders. Um, it's, it's great to be academics and to be uh, legal professionals and to be civil society. And uh, you know we will go out there and we will try to be the hammer and we will go to bat for you. But oftentimes, shareholders can be one of the, the most influential groups uh, that can help a, a company change its practices. Paul, you have something to say. Just one more th point I would add is that you know, it's also really going to be important to think about what is transparency in a sensor-rich environment where you're walking around in physical space and data is being collected via sensors. And you know, there is no interface uh, that you might have with a phone or a laptop. Um, and that, that collection can be very, very silent and passive to the individual. So I think that's another important thing to think about um, is you know, how, to, how to make those environments, not that you're you know, obviously flashing lights in people's lives or having them read notices, but making it clear that data is being collected about them in an environment. Wendy, go for it. Uh, uh, and I think one of the uh, important aspects of sort of giving meaningful notice about meaningful transparency on collection practices is sort of mirroring back to uh, people the information that's collected about them. Uh, so while it may not seem like much to recognize that your uh, GPS-enabled phone is tracking your every movement, uh, if you go to Google Takeout and download the map of all of the data points they've collected on you, uh, you get a very different picture of 
wow, it's got my every trip from school to work to, to home. Uh, it's got that restaurant I visited once. It's got the family members I visited. That's a much a more visceral interaction with what data collection means. Uh, and that kind of feedback can also help us figure out when do I want to turn that off? When do I appreciate those sensors but want to erase the data later? And, and uh, you know, that, that's a great segue to my next question for you, for you Wendy, which, which uh, goes to something that you said earlier. Um, and it's almost an illusion of choice, right? Because uh, the way people interact with so many of these things these days uh, is uh, through something that they can't help. Uh, you know, they walk into a store, uh, they walk down the street, uh, or even if, it, you know, there are secondary market kind of jobs that have been created around these platforms, right, that people build their businesses on, right, uh, via YouTube, via Instagram, via all these things. Are, are we truly giving people a choice here, uh, you know, do, do, or are we just kidding ourselves with that? I I agree, and in, in many cases, the, the, the choice is uh, illusory, and uh, so several people in earlier discussions have alluded to the, the notion of information fiduciaries, uh, and maybe we need a framework that recognizes some of this disclosure is inevitable, uh, some of the rights that we want to protect and the autonomy of individuals uh, is something that we really, as a society, want to treat as inalienable. Uh, and so those who collect the data uh, should be subject to, to rules about its use and should be forced to uh, consider our benefit uh, primary in, in the use controls. So, you know, one of the things that I realized, too, as a consumer ever since, you know, GDPR was implemented is the huge burden that this puts on consumers, right? So just checking all of these boxes every day, like, of course, I just want to get to the web page. I just want the information that I need. Um, and I think putting the onus on the consumer to parse through all of this and make these choices and figure out what are the uses of data, it's a full-time job. And and so I completely agree that I think what we need, and, and you call it fiduciary, and I, I've kind of been toying with the term um, data stewardship and whether there is is something there that um, could allow consumers a sense of this I can rely on this and I think an example in the healthcare space is you know, Apple's health kit um, which I mentioned before they have certain developer guidelines that any any health app that you have on your iPhone that's available to you in the iPhone marketplace um, app store has has complied with these requirements. So they can't sell your data. They, there's just certain things that they have agreed to. And I would call that kind of a stewardship model. Like they've taken on certain responsibilities so that I as the consumer don't need to go in and check every single privacy policy of every single app that I may want to use. I can trust that Apple's looking out for XYZ things. And so I think that's the burden on individual people, especially in the healthcare space, when we think about meaningful choice. If you're talking about a parent that has a child with type 2 diabetes and is trying to use these apps to monitor her health over time and collect her health records and may need um, these digital tools in order to better manage her kids' care, it's very unfair to expect um, somebody in that position to be uh, perusing all of this information and coming up with an informed choice. And, and jumping off of, uh, you know, what you mentioned about the fact that the GDPR is basically making you check more boxes, right? So obviously uh, the GDPR is not only affecting European websites and European uh, services, right? It is affecting the U.S. To what extent are we seeing that 
this is now the new floor for notice and choice? Like, is it fully implemented or is it, uh, do we have some US companies that are just, you know, putting their head in the sand and thinking, uh, this, this really won't affect me? Happy to speak to it briefly, but others are, are better GDPR experts than I am. I will just say anecdotally that I've had several clients say to me, it would be easier if the US just adopted GDPR. We already have to comply with it for most of our customers. I don't want to have to comply with a whole new different regime, even if it's easier to comply with. Because at this point, any company that deals with anybody in the EU is going to have to, has built all of this into their system already at quite a significant investment. So that's just what I'll share about it. All you also see clients. Yeah, I think what what I would just uh, I would make two points on that. You know, one is that it's important to remember that GDPR. Well, there is the consent mechanism in GDPR. There are other bases, legal bases uh, for processing that the GDPR sets out. So it starts to actually, I think recognize that consent is not going to be the answer all the time, that consumers, individuals don't want to consent all the time, that there are going to be social norms that say that, you know, certain data is appropriate to be used for certain uh, purposes. I think, you know, health research might be one of those. So, um, you know, well, I, I definitely appreciate the, the consent burden. I think it's important to, to look at that in the context of other things that are going on in the GDPR. Um, and the other thing that I would mention is that the GDPR also introduces uh, this idea of accountability, which goes to, I think, the data stewardship um, concept that Maya was talking about. And that is, you know, it starts to shift more of the burden to the company to say, you know, you know, sort of just checking boxes about fair information practice principles isn't enough. You know, you've got to put in place some kind of a program within your company. A lot of what we heard about on previous panels, a program, a set of policies in your company, you have to do risk assessment and mitigation, you need to engage in privacy by design, so that you know, you've got to take responsibility for this data you're collecting and using it responsibly, not to the detriment of the individual. You've got to be able to be answerable to a regulator if something goes wrong. So I think, um, I think it's important to look at this in the broader context of what the GDPR actually sets out. So, so Liz, um, you know, from the non-lawyer perspective, uh, you know, what are you seeing as the biggest challenge in, in getting this right, in, in putting the notice and comment out there? I mean, for the uh, notice and choice out there, for the most part, right, the base concept of notice and choice is ingrained in the, you know, in the market now, but it is constantly evolving. And now, you know, there are outside U.S. pressures and now in California potentially in, in U.S. pressures. Where, where do you see kind of the challenges uh, for, for uh, the technologists to implement this kind of stuff given all these uh, policy changes? Uh, I, I think that one of the biggest challenges, I would call this a hurdle to overcome, but I, I don't know that it is. it is. I would like us to think of it as that, um, but is really kind of communicating these issues to members of the public, to translating some of the significance of privacy generally, um, but of, of particular, um, you know, pieces of, of information and what can happen to uh, to lay people. One of the areas where we, we see this is with respect to transparency reporting, which I mentioned earlier. Is anybody here familiar with transparency reports by, um, say, Google or Twitter? Anybody heard of them? So um, Only the panelists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really important, really awesome. Um, it's a fun way to spend a 
Friday night. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in the wake of Edward Snowden, uh, a, a number of companies started publishing these public-facing transparency reports, which um, revealed, in particular at first, they, they just focused on government requests for user data. Um, and kind of what the number of requests that these companies had received. Since then, they've expanded uh, to, to other issues that impact user privacy and freedom of expression. But one of the challenges that, that we've seen uh, while advocating for greater transparency around these practices is that um, who is that transparency for? Mm -hmm. uh, if that transparency is for policymakers, there's one approach. If that transparency is for journalists who can then translate it to the public, that's another approach. But if that transparency is for the public, if you are Google and you are um, wanting, uh, you know, just to, you know, Joe from next door to uh, pull up your uh, uh, privacy policy or your FAQ about your practices. Will he understand it? Um, and it, it, it's turning out that the answer is really no. Um, but also, Joe is probably not actually interested in it. Um, so there are a couple of kind of pieces there that I think are um, uh, challenges that that are interesting. Uh, uh, you know, in kind of trying to think through the solutions, um, and that, as I said, I, I I hope that we are able to overcome them. All right. So uh, I do want to leave room for you guys to ask questions from the audience. Uh, I'll ask like one more, perhaps slightly more provocative question uh, th than the rest uh, before I open it up to you guys. But please feel free to start thinking about the questions you want to ask. And as always, I'm sure there are mic runners uh, around to capture them. So let me, uh, I'll start with, Wen uh, with, with Wendy, but I'm sure all of you will want to say something to this, uh, you, you know, why bother to some extent, right? If, if uh, people are only concerned about this, and this goes kind of to, to the discussions that uh, we had in previous panels, right? It, it's very clear that on the industry side, the data is far more valuable to them than it seems to be uh, to the individual users that the data is collected about. Um, are we focusing too much effort on protecting the individual, if the individual isn't willing to value uh, this thing more than uh, their company? Obviously, this is a very provocative question. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, th thank you for, for giving me the, the first crack at responding there. Um, I, I think we've started to see some very interesting behavioral economics uh, research into the values that people put on privacy. And part of it is that they're being given false choices, that they're being asked to contrast and in the moment, do you want to engage with this social network or not? Do you want to uh, get uh, additional insight into your health or not? Do you want to read the news, participate in economic transactions, get a better price on this product? And at each time, it's a r rational choice for the individual to say, yes, I want to speak with my friends. Yes, I want to get a discount on uh, these books. I want to monitor my activity level. Um, and uh, they're not seeing the long-term impact that building up that profile might lead to price discrimination against them where now they're shown to be a price insensitive consumer on some things and are charged more or targeted by advertisements on the social network that have learned from their connection of friends much more than they intentionally revealed uh, or 
you know, uh, slid into a life insurance universe where uh, they can only get life insurance or automobile insurance if they submit to even more invasive tracking. And, and so that's you know, what we rely on a state to help us to do, to help you know, pro protect us against the long-term consequences of decisions that, that we might make, to help us act collectively um, and say, as a society, we value autonomy. We value privacy of readership that uh, we want to be able to express opinions in small groups and think about uh, things and develop opinions before we uh, share them with the world. And uh, so despite the economic value that some companies are finding in collecting that data, I think we, we have societal values on the other side that we want to uphold. Can I add? Go for it. I expect all of you to add to it. <laughs> the thing is, uh, people don't care until they really do, right? It's just like the Electoral College. Nobody cares until we just had an election. <laughs> um, but when you do care, you really care. And I, I just couldn't agree more that this is a great debate about the role of government, right? And, and whether you can, in your day-to-day -day workflow, be thinking about your long-term values and make a choice that is meaningful right then and there. Transparency has a lot of different functions. And I think, first of all, I, I would hesitate to take away transparency from as a basis for regulation because it's really the only way government, you know, the Federal Trade Commission can know what a company is asserting that it is doing and can, can judge based on their assertions whether they're actually meeting that policy. Um, but I think there's, you know, something else going on is, you know, the sort of do we do we want um, even if individuals aren't going and reading those lengthy policies, I wonder what would happen if they had transparency that actually worked better for them. They might be more engaged. Um, and you know, as Maya said, they don't care until they care. And I think it was you know, Lisa Soto made the point that you know, we in the privacy community thought the whole world knew what was going on with data. And then after Cambridge Analytica, we realized they didn't, and they were really angry when they found out what did happen. So um, I think it's, transparency serves this function of keeping data use practices above the table. And uh, it allows there to be a public discourse about it, because what we're doing with all this is we're changing, we're changing society, we're changing norms, and we need to know that that's what we're doing. And we need to be able to have the ability to weigh in on that. And if we don't have transparency, you know, we're, the, the public is going to be shut out of that entirely. So I would say that, you know, just because it doesn't work the way it functions now doesn't mean you abandon it. I think there is a role here for civil society. Um, one of the things that civil society does, and especially in a situation like this, um, is step in uh, and read the privacy policy, explain it, mm -hmm. speak to journalists about it, uh, speak to policymakers about it. We essentially serve... Um, you know, for, for the public uh, and for members of the public um, who may or may not know we exist, who may or may not know, uh, be interested in uh, the kind of the, the information at issue, but oftentimes I believe that is very much the role of civil society. And if we are unable to kind of change the habits or the interests of, of everybody and get everybody as kind of committed to and excited about questions of, of privacy as everyone in this room is, um, then there are other approaches. And that's just kind of the reality we are working in. And so that's where I would advocate a role for civil society. Okay. Any questions from the audience? Hello. Uh, 
Thank you very much to all of the speakers. Uh, this question is in response to uh, the anecdote that Maya Opaluru said about her clients who were saying that uh, it's, I'd rather that we just have uh, a European standard everywhere because we're already complying with it. I was wondering if you or anyone else on the panel uh, would like to comment on that in the, the larger history of uh, economic politics. Do you think that we're on the verge of undoing the trend from the Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher era where there was a sort of international race to deregulate on the theory that you wanted to make your jurisdiction the most attractive to business with less regulation, now perhaps an international race to regulate if the trend is going to be businesses are going to comply with and essentially support the most um, thorough regulatory regime because they'd rather just stick with that, then the way to have control over the regulation is to have the most thorough or demanding regulatory regime and then at least you get to control it. Do you think there might be a race in that direction? I'm happy, I'm gonna turn it over to you, Paula, but um, I'm happy to, so the first point I would make is some clients have said that to me, others would love for the US to never adopt GDPR, so there is a diversity of perspectives here and I want to make that clear. Um, but I, I will say the other thing that I've heard is that um, not necessarily the most prescriptive regime, but a clear regime would help, right? Like just knowing what rules of the road are um, makes it easier to do business and, and rather than operate in a, in a sense of un insecurity or um, uncertainty about what the, how the law will be interpreted. It helps you um, enter into partnerships and agreements with other people um, because if if there is uncertainty with the regulation and then two people on opposing sides of something disagree, it's very hard to come to the middle, right? So to some extent, I think clarity um, would help, not necessarily the most um, restrictive regime. Um, yeah, I would, I would add to that. Um, I agree that um, I'm not hearing a, a, a huge call uh, amongst companies that we you know, do GDPR everywhere. Um, I think right now, especially medium-sized companies that haven't been engaged in this for the last decade are trying to get themselves up to speed and, and they're, they're concerned about that right now. Um, I do think, I do know that you know, there has been uh, segments of American business that have called for baseline privacy legislation in the United States and that's been going on for about 10 or 15 years. And it's largely been the tech companies who have led that charge um, for, the, for the very motivations that Maya mentioned, you know, having some clarity, some basic rules of the road, leveling the playing field, having a sense of what companies are really obligated to do, but having some kind of a, a, a law that is interoperable with other, um, juris other jurisdictions outside of the United States so that it doesn't impede data flow. So that we're basically speaking the same language based on the fair information practice principles so that we can move that data, but that we have an American approach. So that, that's the other point. Um, you know, I think that on the, you know, we were talking about the Reagan-Thatcher era and where we are now. You know, I think you know, the United States has done a lot to sort of um, influ you know, influence data protection practices around the world and has sort of um, done a lot to sort of bring their philosophy of uh, a more deregulated space, um, less rules, less prescriptive rules. Um, but what I think the, um, you know, the, the, the directive, the European directive and the GDPR benefits from the fact that it is clearly written down. And you know, I think when you hold the pen and you can actually write something that is clearly understood, you can look at it and analyze it and see how it works in your market. 
that's a, that's very persuasive. And you, if you feel as though you know, you implement something that's going to open a particular market very easily. I think that's very persuasive. It's very hard to go out and and advocate for a philosophy. Um, it, it's it's not as persuasive. It's harder to you know make make people understand that, particularly when you know you're operating from a common law perspective and you're taking that approach to uh, civil law countries. Um, it just becomes very, very challenging. So I think we are at a place where I think we have done this shift from this Reagan-Thatcher era approach to this more, you know, set it down in writing. It'll be interesting to see if that holds, if this works. I, we could have another swing in the other direction if, you know, the markets, you know, if this doesn't benefit the markets. Thank you to all of you. Uh, sort of to piggyback off of that, um, Obviously, the requirements, the U.S. requirements for uh, notice and choice and privacy regulations in general aren't black and white. And I'm curious for each of you in your individual practices, whether you're advising clients or friends in terms of creating their regimes or their privacy policies, if you err on the side of a more sort of conservative approach or a more liberal approach in terms of what to include and, and what to follow. In, in working with sort of technology, um, and uh, I, I like to look at you know, privacy as a flavor of information security. So even for uh, companies who are trafficking in data, um, that they're also concerned about the security of that data and the concerns about uh, data breach liability. So don't collect more than you need. Don't collect without uh, a reason uh, for its collection. Don't keep beyond what you uh, need the information for. Sort of minimize your own risks by uh, being targeted in uh, the, the collection and use of data. And as we see GDPR in California and others asking more questions about data practices, uh, I think. Uh, it is good practice to be able to explain why you've taken each of the steps that you've taken, why you've collected, analyzed, and used information. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll we'll see more pressure for sort of good data hygiene, uh, and that will improve the user's experience of privacy. I'll actually just add one, one quick thing. One of the challenges, and we, we talked about this last night a little bit, but uh, you mentioned data minimization and then returning the data after or deleting it or doing something else with it. And I think that the, some of the challenges that we've encountered in our work and with very cutting edge like artificial intelligence and machine learning, you're constantly learning from the data as an ongoing process, right? So what happens when you give it back? Um, and then you encounter new data, and then you're kind of learning from that, but you don't, you didn't retain the data that you had previously. How do we track um, bias in AI when we're giving data back? Like, is there a way to go, and I'm not a technologist, so you know, someone else can think about these things deeply too, but um, how, how do you ensure that you haven't had some discriminatory or biased factors in there if we're operating from a data minimization or return of data um, approach? You know, we talked about social norms versus technological implementation before, and 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 Wendy's kind of, uh, you know, discussing like what the the corporate culture should be around the gathering of data. Are are you guys seeing um, some companies who kind of want to be the paragon here to say, you know, 
we want, we want to be held up as what you should be doing, and to the extent that you're going to regulate, we want you to emulate us. Is, is that part of what you're seeing out there? Yes. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And I, I think there are um, companies, you know, Fortune 100 companies in particular, that have, you know, have been dealing with data issues, and they're extremely data-rich companies. They've been... They've been working these issues for a long, long time. The GDPR was, you know, that was sort of a, a, a latecomer to their discussions about data and trying to figure out how to do it right. And, you know, I don't feel comfortable naming company names, but I've worked with companies who have said, you know, we want to be the white hat company. We want to set the standard for how this is done well. And, you know, they understand that their brand depends on this, their reputation, and not just their own, but the reputation of the entire industry. So, you know, I think that um, there are leadership companies here. Now, obviously, they have business interests. They have, a, you know, profit motivation, all of that. But they also understand that the health of this, you know, data economy depends on getting this right. You, we, you know, if you have enough Cambridge Analytica moments, you know, the, the market's going to reflect that, and they they don't they don't want to be a part of that. So, but and I think what what that leadership does then is, you know, if those leadership companies have adopted that level of privacy, they're going to start demanding that of their vendors, of their business partners, and so there's sort of externalities that start to happen when you have that kind of leadership in the market. I completely co-signed everything that you just said. Um, there, there are several companies, especially in healthcare, because the data is more sensitive, that see um, holding themselves out to a higher standard as being a positive market differentiator for them and um, something that would make them outpace their competitors. I'll echo that as well. We saw the same thing with respect to um, transparency reporting. And um, in, in general, it has been my experience that a a number of these companies view, um, you know, a, a change like a change to a privacy policy as um, a, a potential opportunity for good PR or bad PR. Um, and a couple of years ago, uh, an, an incident in particular comes to mind, which is that Snapchat updated its um, terms of use policies, and one of the changes uh, led to a lot of confusion and the suggestion that you no longer owned the intellectual property rights to um, to your photos or your stories or whatever it may be. And there was a huge, significant outcry. And Snapchat said this was not their intention. That was not what they intended to do. But the result of kind of poor communication about one of their policies and practices resulted in a kind of PR debacle for them. Uh, so I'd first like to just thank you all for an incredible panel. Uh, so my question has to do with the data fiduciaries and data stewardship that came up in this panel and in previous panels. So I was wondering who you thought in the data market might be best suited to be a data fiduciary and ideally what their core responsibilities might entail. So I, I think we can look at that term in, in at least two ways. One could be uh, that you could explicitly entrust data to uh, a third party to be sort of custodian for you and to be making data choices for you in the world. Um, so that, that's analogous to a sort of financial fiduciary relationship where you might, uh, in some cases uh, previously by law, now just by <laughs> contract, um, and enter into a fiduciary relationship with a banker saying, invest my money for me 
and make the best choices because you're the expert and I uh, am not. Um, and uh, so we could, if we had the right hooks and interfaces, um, entrust, uh, say, uh, an operating system vendor or a mobile phone uh, operator uh, with that kind of data control. Um, and I, second, I, I think uh, we could use the, the term more broadly to say sort of anyone who is collecting and using our data uh, is assuming uh, some or should be held to some fiduciary relationship uh, to us because they, by virtue of aggregating data and their experience with data management, uh, may learn more than we could as individuals, uh, and so they owe it to, to us to take care that they're not using the information against us. Um, my name is Johnny, by the way. Um, so I've heard Cambridge Analytica mentioned a lot today. Um, I think just as an instance where it seemed like the public really kind of understood some of the things that we're talking about in a way that they didn't before, but that's kind of surprising to me to continue. I understand the impact that it had in the private market, but I do wonder whether people were as aware of how that actually played out as we think that they are. Like, I, I think there's maybe more anger about the way that their data was used broadly to influence them than they actually understand kind of the particulars of how the data was collected and ultimately how it ended up um, in the hands of, of that organization. So I think like that leads me into believing, you know, most data, most data subjects, I guess is what we call them now, um, are primarily concerned about whether their data is safe or secure. They don't even really know what that means, but you know, the question they have is whether it's safe. Um, and to that point, I think about like the Apple Health Kits and that kind of that fiduciary relationship. Um, and so I just wonder, you know, is that kind of where some of you see the happy medium being, at least in an era where we don't have the kind of regulation um, to, you know, impose kind of requirements on how data can be used and what can be collected? And if so, you know, do private organizations step in to certify um, or is there some kind of, you know, is there a best fiduciary to handle that, whether it's, you know, ISPs, devices, um, organizations like Apple, things like that? It's a very loaded question. I don't Sorry. <laughs> about like just the best approach here. I, I can give an example. I'll tell another story. Um, when I was in government, one of the biggest things that I worked on was uh, getting individuals access to their own health data um, because it is, I'm sure if as any of you have tried to get access to your own medical records, it's just an incredibly difficult process. It can be costly. They give you faxes. Um, you know, it, for our generation, we're like, what is a fax? So um, it can be, and again, you know, going back to the example that I mentioned earlier, if, you've, if you're a parent or a caregiver of an elderly parent, let's say, or of a child with a complex condition, you just don't have the time to deal with all of this rigmarole stuff. So um, all of this to say, there's been this uh, big push towards the end of the Obama administration, and this administration has continued that push to um, enable people to access their information through application programming interfaces or APIs, similar to how Google and Apple and all these tech companies release data all the time. So our, our basically our whole consumer internet experience is powered by APIs. Um, these barely exist in healthcare. 
So um, one of the tensions that we had to figure out, so going back to your question and who should the fiduciary be here, is um, if there is a covered entity under HIPAA, so a healthcare provider or um, a business associate of that covered entity, or a health plan can also be a covered entity, um, what happens when through an API they deliver a patient's data, even if it's authorized by the patient, to a third-party application that is not within the scope of HIPAA? Um, what fiduciary duties, if any, does, does that third-party application owe to anyone? <laughs> um, and this understandably makes a lot of covered entities anxious because they see themselves as stewards of health data. They are under strict obligations under HIPAA that can be enforced. And once they give, um, once I authorize, you know, my health plan to give data to an app on my iPhone, um, all bets are off, basically. It's up to me whether or not I read the privacy policy and the, and the practices that that app chooses to do or not. And um, I think figuring out whose role it is, um, is, it, is it Apple's in terms of the iPhone store, um, of the app store? Is it the covered entities um, because they're the original custodian of that data? And perhaps the covered entity feels that if there is a misuse of the data, I mean, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook's a great example. Like a lot of people, I mean, Facebook's the one that ended up at the hearings, right? So like they, they gave the data to somebody else. I think a lot of providers, healthcare providers or health plans right now who are under HIPAA think they're the ones who are going to be on the hook if there is a misuse of the data or if there is a big public outcry. Um, so I think it's a super fair question. Unfortunately, there are no easy answers. We're really grappling with this in healthcare right now. And it's this tension between creating a better user experience for patients and their families with um, responsible use of the data and data stewardship. Yeah, and I would add to that, um, to, you know, looking more broadly beyond healthcare data is to look at the series of FTC decisions that have um, come down there where the FTC has specifically required companies to go beyond our sort of traditional notice and choice, you know, as we thought about it in the United States, and to, you know, going back to that concept of accountability, to put in place a program to designate a privacy officer to make sure they're involved in risk, risk assessment, risk mitigation, engaging in privacy by design. They're sending a message to the market that, you know, that, that just notice and choice is not enough and that if you really are going to be a responsible steward of data, if you're going to be collecting and using data in a, in a time when um, you know, there, isn't, there isn't so much choice, there is, all of, there is all this robust use of data we'd like to, robust ways we'd like to use data, um, innovative ways we want to use data for AI, for um, data analytics, that you've got to be making the hard decisions and you've got to be keeping that safe and you cannot push this off on the consumer. So I would go back and look at those, um, that series of um, enforcement actions and, and consent decrees because I think they say a lot about the direction that the FTC is trying to push the marketplace. Based on the conversation we've been having today, it sounds to me like less uh, of a push to continue kind of a notice and choice regime is uh, what we should be going for, and transparency and perhaps traceability uh, is, is instead where uh, we would be better off uh, having governance go to say, you know, you, uh, you have to be very clear about what you plan to do, and uh, maybe you don't really need to give the consumer a choice because other market forces will, uh, in the end, uh, force you to, to behave well, either through government action or through shareholder action or through PR. Uh, uh, so uh, increased uh, transparency and then the, the idea of traceability, right? That 
um, if you are held to account to be able to, to say where the, you sold the data to, um, and then maybe they are also held to account to say where they sold the data to, uh, would be better a, a better way to protect consumers in the long run than, than our current regime. What do, you, what do you think of that? Uh, <laughs> Jump ball. Um, I, I, I think, uh, yes, uh, looking at sort of all of the, the, the parties who are data processors as you know, part of the, the, the potentially liable uh, pool um, makes sense. And you know, uh, part of it is the sort of tracing the data. Um, I think part of it is also of use controls that it's it's not about you know did did Cambridge Analytica get the data from Facebook or from a different party with whom uh, who misled Facebook about where the data was going it's they did something wrong um, by uh, enabling sort of political targeting based on uh, that information uh, and maybe you know much as it pains me as a free expression lawyer uh, to, to think about you know, controlling use of information, uh, that there are some things that, you know, socially are problematic uh, about that, that information use and uh, that, that we need to, to start, you know, regulating the, the, the very precise targeting of advertisements uh, in ways that are uh, not subject to well, transparency. Just so, just to, to add a footnote there, I think another place that transparency reporting is valuable uh, is in starting to collect some of that information about who was shown what ads and how did that uh, uh, attempt to influence people. Yeah, I, sometimes um, in the last five years, in particular, I've, I've begun to think that you know privacy is becoming sort of a um, a stand-in for, you know, a lot of other questions about data that have to do with social engineering, our sense of personal autonomy, um, what our shifting social norms are, and you know, I think that is the argument for transparency: is that we keep this data use above the table so we can make more conscious decisions about that. And um, and I just lost the rest of my thought, but um, you know, but I I, I do think that it's. Um, you know, it's, it's really important to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that, um, and now I remember, one of the things, things I think that's really an indication of the shift is that you see a lot of uh, big data-rich companies are actually now moving into the area of data ethics. Um, the European Data Protection Supervisor's Office is looking at data ethics. Um, I, there are companies that are now hiring philosophers, anthropologists, ethicists to sit on panels um, inside of the company to help make decisions because the, the questions are now almost bigger than you know privacy. What do people know about me? It's about what decisions are they making about me? And do I have a say in those decisions? And why is it that my data is now being used potentially to my detriment? Um, and, and what is the trajectory of this from a social standpoint? So um, well, when we talk about privacy, I think we, we've really opened up the lens quite a bit on what it is we're really looking at. And um, I think that is, and that, and that transparency actually supports that kind of analysis, which I think is gonna be really important going forward. 
So uh, we, we have time for kind of final thoughts, and that's about it. And I, I recognize that it's us uh, standing between you and uh, the reception, which is a very dangerous place to be. Uh, but uh, you know, recognizing that there are students in the room, and I, and I also recognize that the majority of the students do not have a technical degree. Right, uh, they, they come from all, all sorts of undergrad majors, they have all sorts of backgrounds, um, uh, and they might be interested in a career related to, the, to, to this material. Now certainly uh, the discussion we've had over the course of the day indicates that you can have a discussion about this stuff without getting too far into the weeds about the, what the technology actually is and how it works. But, uh, I, I think uh, the students would really benefit from each of you to, to say a little bit about, you know, to the extent that you are in this field, uh, how much of an understanding of the technology is truly required versus just talking about legal norms and uh, ethics and whatnot that they're, they're seeing more generally in any of their law school classes. Uh, I'm happy to jump in. Go this is a it. great question. I'm actually really glad that you asked this. Um, so I was in law school fairly recently, <laughs> um, not, not too many years ago, and I actually took it upon myself to take a couple coding classes in the evenings um, because I worked in the space and because, well, here's why. I was sitting in meetings all the time uh, in fairly you know, gender split rooms where most of the men were the technologists and the women were not. And the policy debates that were happening in those rooms were being directed by the men who are the technologists. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have that technical background, it's very difficult to argue with somebody who's saying words you don't understand. And, and you kind of throw your hands up and say, well, I, I don't understand this. And you can't finish making your point, even if your point was correct. So for me, it became really important to um, stop having that happen to me. <laughs> and I actually took it upon myself to do that. So I highly encourage the law students in here. You don't need to be the, a top coder. Um, but I do think that it is very worthwhile and a good life skill to familiarize yourself with the technology that you may one day be regulating or writing a policy for. Um, the second thing that I'll say in terms of you know, extracurricular education besides the law is uh, user-centered design. Um, it's a really interesting field, and it's growing, um, sometimes called human-centered design. It's something that I didn't learn about until I joined um, the White House US Digital Service, which is a bunch of um, Silicon Valley technologists who um, come into government to do a tour of duty and serve uh, for two years in, in terms of uh, helping the government do better with the data that the government holds. Um, it was an incredible experience because I was maybe the one lawyer on a team that had engineers, designers, um, product managers, and it really introduced me to how Silicon Valley and tech companies uh, organize themselves internally, and it, um, it introduced me to this concept of user-centered design, which I've now applied in all aspects of my life. Basically asks you if you can put yourself, it's, it's about empathy, if you can put yourself in the shoes of a consumer or a user, what is their experience like? Can we kind of uh, target all of our strategic goals around making sure that consumers' experience is as good as possible and we're kind of on an agile and iterative way checking in with them and uh, improving our product over time? So I would highly encourage um, any of the law students in here to check out uh, user center design as well as go ahead and take a coding class. It is tough. It's not easy, um, but it's definitely worthwhile. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is um, I think as lawyers, whether you're counseling clients or you're influencing government, being able to translate that technical language into English um, is going to be a really important piece of your skill set. Um, because you know, one of the things I think we did see in the Facebook hearings 
were policymakers who really didn't understand the questions they were asking or the answers they were getting because I kept saying, well, there's the follow-up and they never had the follow-up. So, um, you know, I think it's serving that translating function is also really important. So, you know, good, you know, language skills, writing skills, I think are still important even in a very technical time. I will echo uh, what Paula said. I actually have Zuck hearings policymakers be able to translate um, written down. So, uh, you know, plus one to everything she said. There are programs right now that are working to address that problem by placing technologists uh, in members of Congress uh, in their offices. Uh, and that is, you know, one route uh, that, that we can go, but also many of you are digital natives. Um, you are uniquely positioned to be able to communicate and translate these issues, especially in a courtroom. Um, there are an, you know, entire cases that rest on the nuance of technical details, uh, and you may well uh, be the person who needs to explain those. So while I say you don't need to go get a PhD in computer science, you should take a coding course, you should take a user-centered design uh, course, you should do everything you can to kind of really understand this industry and the technical pieces. Yeah, and make your employer pay for it. <laughs> Don't, you know, they're expensive too. There are creative strategies to get this done. Yeah, it's, it's a thrill to be on this panel because I echo what all of my fellow panelists uh, have said uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, I'll just add sort of a, a plea against privacy nihilism. Uh, there's an, a tendency to sort of throw up our hands at the end of the day and say there are so many threats to privacy, why bother? Um, please don't. Please go out and uh, work to defend uh, privacy and autonomy because I think our humanity and democracy depend on it. That's a great. And on that note, yeah. thank you very much. The Farm Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Patterson. Our Volume 29 Editor-in-Chief is Jeffrey Dean. Our Managing Editor is Michael Rivera. A special thanks to Symposium Editor Chloe Curtis and a sincere thank you to all our panelists and moderators and to everyone at IPLJ for making the symposium possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us, up, can follow us at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fordham IPLJ. You can also visit our website at FordhamIPLJ.org for our content. And we're online editor, Patrick Cohen. Thank you for listening and see you next week.